0: This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Thank you. Oh, what a nice audience.
1: It's lovely. They must like you
0: or something. (laughs) So, the first thing to say is welcome. Um, The second thing to say is that this event is sponsored by WWF, World Wildlife Fund.
1: Not the wrestling.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Um, More interesting. And they've got a little stand outside. They would like you to fill in a campaign postcard. And the Scottish director is here. His name is Lang Banks. (laughs) and he will be in the Garden Bookshop Cafe afterwards if you want to talk to him instead of Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, Matt, so happy to have you here. Um, Matt Egg is the number one best-selling author of Reasons to Stay Alive, six novels for adults, many books for children, many of which have been awarded prizes. He's sold more than one million copies of books in the UK, translated to 40 language languages, and married with two children. I consider that an achievement. (laughs) So here he is to talk about the sequel to Reasons to Stay Alive. It's called Notes on a Nervous Planet. It's out in paperback now. Um, I want to say welcome first, we should say. Thank you. So instead of um, getting him to read from his book to start off with, I thought I would do something slightly different. I'm going to ask him to read... Some tweets. He has 320,000 followers, correct?
1: I think so. Yep. That's Apparently. A lot.
0: And so I'm, I'm passing him four tweets that I want us to hear.
1: <laughs> I never actually read... It's weird, like, because even though I have followers on Twitter, I, I always imagine no one is actually real on Twitter. <laughs> and I always forget. And I've never actually read out a tweet, because I write them, but I wouldn't actually... <laughs> Read them out at a festival, for instance. But apparently, I, I'm doing this. Okay. Don't so forget
0: the date, the date. I won't
1: forget the date. Okay. Uh, 1308, 2019, 1035 p.m. I sent this. Um, weird month. Had my writing pilloried in the right wing media. Had my looks attacked by a hundred Daily Mail commenters been lied about in the press, and I actually feel better than ever. <laughs> it's not what people say about you, it's what you feel about you, and I feel good." That was a tweet. Um, shall I read all of these yep, tweets? Yep. My entire timeline. This is. Um, <laughs> um, this was 4.08, f- four oh 2019. So that's August, yes. Um, in the morning. The Texas governor said the cause for the El Paso shooting is mental illness. It's weird because mental illness exists in every single country, yet America's lax gun laws exist in just one, the one with all the mass shootings. Maybe it's guns. Um. (laughs) APPLAUSE Uh, 07, 08, 2019, 08:59 08, in the morning, which will have been before my breakfast, probably. Um, and one of the reasons some men find it hard to seek help is that they feel deep in their soul that they are not meant to. That to seek help is to turn them into a person they have fought their whole life not to be. I tweet a lot about sort of stuff. Um, and then. This this is an embarrassing one, but I, I, as you suggested, I read it. I will <laughs> read it. 03, 08, 615 pm. Her Royal Highness Duchess Meghan called me a force for change. So now I can die happy. I would love to go back in time and tell my young, hopeless, suicidal self about all this magic to stay alive for.
0: Thank you. <laughs> mm. See. It worked. <laughs>
1: I was, uh, yeah, I was, a bit, I was very excited about that um, Duchess Meghan thing because I came home from holiday and amid all the um, bills and magazines, I had this handwritten note from royalty there. And I was very excited and I got caught up in the moment and I went on Twitter to show off and it was, I don't know, it's a bit cringy.
0: Just nice handwriting. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to come back to her in a minute, but congratulations on that, definitely. I want you to tell us about that. But what I want to talk about now is, is this book in particular. It's called Notes on a Nervous Planet, but I think it actually could almost be called how to, sur- to, how to Survive a Nervous Planet. And one of the things you say in this book is to deeply question the habits of the digital age. Take a break from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you obs- and you I don't do much of
1: that, do I do <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. Well, let me ask my question.
0: <laughs> so, what, I, what you in, in this book talk a lot about, among other things too, of course, is that the sort of the Twitter and the social media is this incredible obsessive loop and the terrible things that the, the world is throwing at us at great speed, which is obviously the, the nervous planet. That's what this book is all about. But at the same time, as is proved by your. Reading of the tweets—it's a brilliant medium for you, and so what—and it's in the same style as a lot of, of your books too. So what I thought that was—I felt it's was such an interesting contradiction.
1: Yeah, um, I have a love-hate relationship with it. It's like, Twitter can social media in general can be the best thing; it can be the worst thing. Um, the tale of two twitters—it um, is really, um, yes, that was worthy of a groan. <laughs> Um, it's, yeah, I don't understand. I, I, I think there is an addictive element to it, which I don't like um, being an addictive personality. And, you know, I, I've read recently from, like, um, technology people in social media, and that they compare it, actually, to the, a lot of the mechanics of gambling and how, like, fruit machines mm-hmm. work, where you're literally pressing the button wanting all the cherries to line up, wanting the mm. cherries... You know, that scrolling down thing, scroll to refresh, scroll to refresh, wanting the next thing. I think, you know... A, a, and, and it's not accidental how um, social media, the successful social media sites are designed. They're designed um, to be addictive, even mm. though that's, a, a, that's still a slightly controversial word in this area. But I think eventually they will be seen as potentially addictive substances. But like some other potentially addictive substances. There are, are um, sometimes things about it which make you feel happy or make you feel connected to other people, and there's definitely that element. And I, I'm, I'm 44 years old, so I'm old enough to remember the time before social media and I'm even old enough to remember being published before social media, and it was very frustrating um, in terms of uh, how you communicate with readers, because essentially, unless it was a festival like this, you, you couldn't, and you didn't have much. The author-reader relationship was very distant. So it, it's very good for that. It's very good for um, raising awareness of issues. Mm. Um, it's very good to not feel alone about mental health problems and things like that. Um, but the bad side, especially the um, bad side with Twitter, is people tend to act like, Arseholes a lot on Twitter and it brings out your own that own element of me I feel which is why when you said oh will you read some tweets out I thought oh which which ones (laughs) (laughs) because there's some I wouldn't want to Um, and there's some you regret almost after Mm. saying it so I feel like sometimes being good at Twitter is kind of like a backhanded compliment because it's like just being really good at being annoying (laughs)
0: <laughs> but actually I would say all of those things yes and you, and you talk about those things in the book too but but also it's an it's a, not just a good medium for you because you can communicate with people but it's it's your writing style too isn't it not all of it of course well,
1: I, like, you know, I yeah I mean I like um I like simplicity I like being able to translate Things like it goes for back to the mental health thing. Like when I had depression, and I found it literally very hard to articulate anything mm. or to understand anything. And my big quest with my own recovery to an extent from being suicidal to being not suicidal um, was really a process of learning how to articulate what I was feeling in order to manage what I was feeling. And I, so I'm you know. I did a master's degree. Before I had a breakdown, I did a master's degree at Leeds University. And no disrespect to um, that course, but I sort of learnt to be snobby about simplicity Mm -hmm. and snobby about things like plot and character and simplicity in storytelling and all of that. And I became quite a typical, pretentious, young MA student, and then I had a nervous breakdown, and suddenly, after, uh, during my nervous breakdown, all I wanted to read was Winnie the Pooh, Mm. and um, stuff that was on my um, bedroom, uh, back in Newark-on-Trent, because I was back living with my parents and my girlfriend, Andrea, and it was lots of children's books, and I suddenly started reading all these children's books, and um, I I relished their simplicity, and simplicity is not the same as it's not easy necessarily to write something that feels pure mm. and simple. You know, it's the easiest thing in the world sometimes to be complicated because life is complicated and you can write down a stream of consciousness, anything, and it'd be super complex. But I, I like the challenge of actually not dumbing down, but being able to sort of translate something as simply as possible. And Twitter, because of its word limit, character limit, it sort of forces you to be mm. succinct. So I like that
0: yeah, I can see it. It really is your medium. But as you say, it's the flip side is... It's like anything really... Yeah. Is the flip side is the really bad thing too, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and I've had lo- lots of... Yeah, I, I've had like loads of people, and I'm definitely not the person who gets most attacked on there, but because I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm a very... like My fatal flaw is that I'm quite opinionated, but also thin-skinned, mm. which is a, a bad mix <laughs> for Twitter. <laughs>
0: Sometimes I think that might be the definition <laughs> of an author. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, so just I want to go back a bit. So the reasons to stay alive indeed t- t- tells the story that, that you just talked about right now, which is going through a very serious crisis, and then at the end deciding—well, not the end of the book, but the end of, of that period—deciding to live and then to really live. And you came out <clears throat> and told this story. Huge success, as I said, millions of copies. That must have taken you by surprise. Because you suddenly showed yourself to be very vulnerable to the world, a very important book for lots of people, and now you're the champion of mental health. And you know, how does that feel?
1: It sounds a bit scary because, um, yeah, and sometimes like you get called ambassador, ambassador of like, men, like mental, health ambassador. And then people say, oh, you can't say that because you're an ambassador of mental health. And I said, I never asked to be an ambassador. I don't, you know, I'll take the Fiera Russia, but I'm, I'm not. I don't want. <laughs> anything else involved with this ambassadorship. Um, and it's strange because I'm, I'm not a doctor. I was never even in the Samaritans or anything. I'm just a person who had a story. I wanted to tell that story because I wanted to make other people who are going through something similar to feel less alone with that. And yes, I've sort of got some answers in that book but they're, they're, they're subjective answers and they're answers for me and that whole book really is just like a message in a bottle back through Time to that person who was literally on a cliff edge and who uh, literally and metaphorically on a cliff edge and who uh, woke up every day wanting to die and I felt there would be no way out of that situation and the reason I was suicidal wasn't because I had a, a, a love of death or a death wish in that sense. It was just I had no idea how um, to cope with living. So that's... I what I had in mind when I was writing Reasons to Stay Alive and I was in a very different situation in life I was writing it from that future self what I didn't believe in when I was 24 years old to sort of like try and and break through space time and tell that person or the equivalent of that person that that future exists so I had a very very clear idea who my reader was it was me when Mm. I was 24 years old so it was very nice when you're writing anything to have an idea of Mm -hmm. who you're writing it for
0: And do you feel happy to come on stage now and...?
1: Um, No. Uh, (laughs) Well, um, uh, this is all right, actually, because A, you're you're friendly, I think, and and B, I'm talking to you, and it's nice to talk to someone, because stupidly, this year, I did a tour. I I agreed to do this theatre tour, and I had the option for it to be nice, like um, a conversation like this, and and stupidly, I said, no, I will do um, it solo, because... I've got this thing with my anxiety where where I'm scared of something but I sort of want to do it but I'm very, very scared of it. I think, no, I have to. I literally have to say yes to that Mm. because otherwise it will build and build and build and become like a phobia. So I'd been asked, you know, do you want to do it solo? And like, there was a tiny little part of me before oh, that'd be really cool, and most of me was like, no way, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. Uh, and then I, but I, it was like still months in advance, so it was still like this hypothetical concept. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do this um, solo theatre tour. And then after I said yes, I started to get more and more. Nervous about doing it and I was having anxiety dreams about it I kept on having one about Sam Smith you know the pop star Sam Smith he was playing at the O2 and he, for some reason he couldn't do it and for some even wilder reason he phoned me and I, I've never met Sam Smith and I can't sing and um I don't really know any Sam Smith songs. And he said, would you... So I was there having to be in front of like 20,000 people in my dream um, singing Sam Smith songs. And that's what was my anxiety dream for like every night for about five months, no, three months. And that that was bad. And also... um, Uh, I told my mum that I I, I was about to do these events, and she knows, because she used to be so worried about me as a kid, but she she used to force me to um, speech and drama lessons and build my confidence up like that. And she even got me to play um, the prince in an amateur production of Sleeping Beauty. And my sister was Sleeping Beauty, so I had to kiss (laughs) my own sister in front of my peer group uh, uh, at a pivotal age in my life. And... Um, What else? Yeah, so public (laughs) speaking was always a thing for me, but also I think it's also cultural. We have a massive fear in Britain of public speaking. They did a survey in 2013, (laughs) the largest of its kind, looking at the greatest fears of Mm, um, the British public. And number one was the fear of losing someone you love. Number two was... um, fear of public speaking, which technically is called glossophobia, so that's your word for today if you don't know it, Um, fear of public speaking. That came above number three, which was your own actual death. (laughs) So public speaking, this is worse than (laughs) death.
0: So I want to talk about um, the the phrase mental health, because it it feels to me you know, you've talked about it there, actually, that it's it's quite sort of bandied around these days. And it's obviously good, you know, that we're talking. So we've got Prince Harry and Ruby Wax and Alistair Campbell. And a lot of the comics on the fringe here are being very open about this sort of thing. But I just wondered, I want to ask you if we could just look at that word a bit more, because it feels to me like it's getting a bit shop-soiled <laughs> and used kind of correctly. Cause I, well, like sh- mental health. Oh, yeah. Because I see it's used everything from sort of lack of resilience to... Serious psychotic illnesses, and f- or from people who feel a little bit blue to people who can't feel anything, mm. and I'm just wondering: Do you think now we're at a stage? You know, since we're, mental health is sort of discussed openly, which is obviously great, that we need new words for it? We need. I think there's more confusion. Precise?
1: There's confusion about mental health because the first thing about mental health is it's not mental illness. Mental health, I think, is just as in the way that physical health isn't physical illness physical health is something we all have to look after and tend to. And so I think mental health is useful in the sense that it's broad, in the sense that it's non-specific because it actually suggests that we all... You know, it is a universal issue. It's not a one-in-four or a one-in-three issue. It's a one-in-one issue. Everybody has mental health. And um, going back to Twitter, there's there's a person on Twitter called Piers Morgan... Who, um, who's improved my mental health by blocking me? Actually, nice. <laughs> but um, he, he says we should stop using the word mental health and start using the words mental strength, um, because you know there's t- too many people talking about mental illness. But I, I, I thought how strange that was because if you say, oh, we should stop talking about physical health and start talking about Mm -hmm. physical strength, it just becomes this weird thing. And, you know, it's often associated with, like, manning up out of Mm -hmm. mental health discussions. But I think it's kind of, like, sort of silly. But, I mean, we do need more specific words, I think. And I think what's interesting is is the evolution of language. I don't think any of the terms, any of the labels we've got totally, um, totally fit what it feels like. Like depression in particular, depression for me, um, it never really, I don't know why, but that word never summed up what I was feeling. And I think because often the connotations of depression are slowness, Mm. lethargy, the the external idea of depression of seeing someone in, in a bed, not being able to get out of bed. And depression, as often as not, is coupled with anxiety. And anxiety... It's kind of the opposite of that. Anxiety is where everything is fast. So you might look like you're lethargic or slow on the outside, but actually, what's going on invisibly inside is very fast. So, so just that alone, you know, just the word depression for me doesn't really sum up depression. And it used to be melancholia, and sometimes mm-hmm. I, I like that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But even that's sort of wrong, and it's got you think of too many sort of romantic poets with that. But
0: um, have you found a word?
1: No. Um, Brexit, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You did say, though, I I listened to you talk about that you wanted to say not mental health, but just health.
1: Yes, I think so, because I think ultimately, in Utopia, which we're obviously heading towards, I I can feel it. um,
0: Well, we're in Scotland. We're in
1: Scotland. Um, I feel that um, there won't be that brick wall we have between mental health and physical health. Because when when I was ill, actually, when I first had my breakdown, literally first having that first panic attack, it felt like something very, very physical Physical, was happening. There was literal sensations fluttering in my skull. You could literally see parts of my body just like fluttering and shaking and quivering. And it was physical. And I don't need... Even if you think mental health is just your brain, is your brain not physical? You know, I don't understand why mental health is over here and physical health is over here. I know the history of it and the Bible and Descartes and everything else where we we have this sort of separation of mind and body. But it doesn't make any sense and I don't think it's helpful in terms of stigma. Mm. I think if we, you know, because, uh, you know, famously men, for instance, are very bad at going to the doctor about mental health but less bad if they've got, like, chest pain or something like that. And, you know, a lot of people, men and women, feel very uncomfortable talking about um, mental stuff and emotions and feelings. But if it was seen that that is as physical as anything else, Mm. then it would become easier to talk about. There'd be less stigma. Um, The solutions would be more likely to come. Um, Because I don't get the line. You know, physical illness has mental effects, you can hallucinate with flu, a high fever. You can hallucinate. You can be feel lethargic because of any physical condition. So yeah, I don't get the difference. So, bit of and a waffly answer. So.
0: <laughs> I showed you this. Um, there's a very good um, essay by Virginia Woolf. sorry about all that banging. Um, and sorry. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> There's a very good illness. Um, it's called On Illness by Virginia Woolf, and it's it, it, interesting, she's talking about physical illness, but of course, since we know so much about Virginia Woolf, you cannot help but read through it and think. But she has this one thing that I should yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. It's great. which is, there, I, there is, let us confess, and illness is the great confessional, a childish outspokenness in illness. Things are said, truths are blurted out, which is the cautious respectability of, that health conceals. And I, I want to ask you about that. Is, do you find, like, a lot... there have, You know, we have a real history, too, of artists, don't we? Virginia yeah. Woolf, Sylvia Plath, Dylan Thomas, Anne Sexton, and now Ruby Wax, Stephen Fry, who have, through illness, have found their art.
1: Yeah. I mean... I it's interesting because you have to be sort of delicate when talking about yes. this because I definitely think there is a connection. Certainly, like with my work, I feel like, so, not so much depression. I find that depression can be just kind of useless and you feel useless and it's just, and it does make you tired a lot of the time and it is quite an unproductive state. But I feel like I, I, with me, I can only speak subjectively about this. I know everyone's different. But with me, like anxiety, panic attacks, that sort of stuff, that was a constant state of your imagination being switched on. Not switched on in a good way, Mm. but you were catastrophizing, you were imagining all kinds of events that weren't going to happen, you were constantly questioning everything, Mm. um, you know, every sound, everything. um, You were thinking worst-case scenarios and and constant, constant, constant exhaustion. So I I think there is some link there. And what was helpful for me about writing, and certainly writing fiction, which is Yes, and you talk
0: about being saved
1: by stories. You know, that was the first kind of writing I did. it was a way to sort of channel that same energy. So it was existing in a similar part of me. I mean, I'll say all that with the caveat that I do think um, it's it's kind of unhelpful to, you know, there's this whole cliche of Mm. tortured artist, Mm. tortured rock star, tortured poet whether it's...
0: Uh, that you have to suffer to, yeah, to be a it,
1: Whether it's Shelley or For Kurt Cobain or yeah. whatever it is, it's this idea, it's this romantic idea, and it was an idea that I had very much in my head when I was um, 24 years old. Because even though it wasn't that long ago, you know, two decades isn't that long, I think in terms of mental health, it has been quite long because mm. 20 years ago, there weren't, There wasn't a massive list of famous people you you could, not living famous people, Mm. who were that open about their mental health problems. So who I had in my mind was Hemingway, Plath, Kurt Cobain, people who died from having depression. And when you're in a state of depression anyway, and you're catastrophizing anyway, mm. um, it is incredibly easy and dangerous to believe that that is going to be your trajectory. Mm. And if you're feeling like, as I was, this pretentious 24 year old MA student who was writing bad poetry, um, you, you feel that well, that's my destiny. I'm one of the sensitive ones and this is what's going to happen to me and I'm going to die and all of this and because there wasn't that much public conversation and I feel like that's a really dangerous thought there's a a quote by uh, David Foster Wallace who said something like the most dangerous feeling he ever had in terms of his mind and depression and obviously he ended up taking his own life at 44, which is my age, which was, used to curse me, I used to think, "Oh, yeah, like, like, oh, it's just young people who, who 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 took their own life." Oh no, but David Foster Wallace was 44, and now I'm 44, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to take my life when I'm 44. So I'm going to get past that. Anyway, David Foster Wallace, um, he said something about the most dangerous thing was, for him, was when he thought he was special, when he mm. thought like it was like a, a gift, like some weird thing in his head, and I, I think. It's not only a bit pretentious, but it is also actually dangerous to start thinking like that. But like anything, and like lots of physical... Experiences and lots of physical health experiences or like having a car crash or like grief or like any intense experience that happens to you, yes, you can use it. You can use it as fuel and creativity helps and there's lots of sort of uh, very official courses where people get people to um, write poetry about what they've gone through, act out plays and stuff and I'm a great believer in the arts as helping with that. But I don't think it... I'm resistant to thinking it marks you as this sort of special, tragic, slash Mm-mm. gifted, dark person.
0: I think you're right. I think that's not a good place to go. <laughs> I think you should tell us about Meghan Markle. Um, <laughs> and what uh, happened... Uh, OK, uh, got, your yeah, good, yeah, no, got a like, good handwriting, but
1: I get, that, I'm really... I can tell you what I can tell you about is... The media, like the media, are obsessed. Because I I had a little, I I don't really pay attention to royal stories in newspapers. But then, because I became part of it, because of Meghan Markle's Vogue edition, where um, I was like chose a chapter which I read in a bit about um, the beach, beach bodies, and body image. um, I had a bit of it, and I was invited on um, this morning, and I foolishly like said yes to go on this morning and it wasn't even Philip and Holly it was the the other two Eamon and Ruth (laughs) and I didn't realise before I'd got on but some of the people who'd been nasty about Meghan Markle were actually Eamon and Ruth uh, apparently had been a bit nasty about Meghan Markle and I didn't realise that and I went on and I I was trying because I was nervous I was trying to be a bit funny and I said and well it's true I was on holiday at the end of July in the south of France and Um, I had an email from my publicist who's probably in his room somewhere uh, at Canongate, Lucy and um, she said "Oh, the editor of Vogue um, would like uh, is including your extract in the new magazine and would like to speak to you about it and I thought that's a bit weird like a magazine editor um, wanting to speak to me and then I realised that after the event that Meghan Markle had been phoning everyone via Edward Enniffel, the Mm -hmm. editor of Vogue, um, to thank them uh, for being included in this edition. I didn't know that. I felt I was just ignoring a work phone call with a magazine editor (laughs) going in a swimming pool. So I joked my stupid way on national television, that I ghosted Meghan Markle, which is—it's not even right. what Use of the word "ghosted," and also it was just like declining a call. I didn't know anything about Meghan Markle in this edition. And then like the Daily Mail, Daily Express, the Sun—it was this author or mental health ambassador um, ghost. Meghan Markle, just because they want some sort of negative... negative story. So and I spent the whole interview defending Meghan Markle, being nice about her, saying about all oh, this press attention. And I thought, oh, just, you, it doesn't matter what... You know, they have a narrative that they um, want, and the mm-hmm. press are going for it. And I just can't believe it. I mean, whatever you think about royal family, I feel like the causes they get behind, climate change, mental health, body mm-hmm. image... They're good causes. The royal family are meant to be doing good causes. The idea of making... I hate it when people say mental health is a political cause or climate change mm-hmm. is a political cause. Is science. Is gravity a political cause? You know, Do
0: you want to read it?
1: Uh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'll read it. And I'll, I'll say that, firstly, it's not a poem because everyone uh, has called it a poem. And the Daily Express said it's the worst poem that's ever been written. <laughs> So here is the worst poem that's ever. Uh, it's definitely not a poem, and it was me, like, because of the body image, all that "Are you beach body ready?" stuff that you see. But like, even men, I know it's traditionally like women; it's been aimed at women all this time. But even men now, you know, there's all these adverts and internet stuff about having to have abs for the beach and all this ridiculous stuff. So I was just trying to do a bit of like copywriting from an advertising perspective, if it was the beach writing it, but it's not a poem, so I just want to say that in case, I doubt there's that many Daily Express readers <laughs> in the audience, but just in okay. Hello, I am the beach. I am created by waves and currents. I am made of eroded rocks. I exist next to the sea. I've been around for millions of years. I was around at the dawn of life itself. And I have to tell you something. I don't care about your body. I am a beach. (laughs) I literally don't give a fuck. I am entirely indifferent to your body mass index. I'm not impressed your abdominal muscles are visible to the naked eye. I'm oblivious. You are one of 200,000 generations of human beings. I've seen them all. I will see all the generations that come after you too. It won't be as many, I'm sorry. I hear the whispers the sea tells me. The sea hates you. The poisoners, that's what it calls you. A bit melodramatic, I know, but that's the sea for you. All drama. (laughs) And I have to tell you something else. Even the other people on the beach don't care about your body. They don't. They are staring at the sea, or they are obsessed with their own appearance. And if they are thinking about you, why do you care? Why do you humans worry so much about a stranger's opinion? Why don't you do what I do? Let it wash all over you. Allow yourself to just be as you are. Just be. Just beach.
0: Did you want to tell us about? You had another poem. Snow- oh yes, snowdrops. I do.
1: I want to read you an actual proper poem because everyone calls that a poem and it's not a poem. It Doesn't even rhyme. It's not a poem. <laughs> no. Um, I've got a poem. I'll go on my phone. So it's risky. Hurry Yeah. Um, there's a, a great poet called Louise Glück, and I thought. Wait, who's it by? Louise Glück. Yep. And um, the poem is called Snowdrops. And it was a poem I read when I was still ill, and it's a poem about recovery. And it's not a funny poem or a silly poem, it's just a a short, beautiful little bit of writing, um, which really struck a chord with me um, when I was uh, coming out of depression. Do you know what I was, how I lived? You know what despair is. Then winter should have meaning for you. I did not expect to survive. Earth suppressing me. I didn't expect to waken again, to feel in damp earth my body able to respond again, remembering after so long how to open again in the cold light of earlier spring. Afraid, yes, but among you again. Crying, yes, but risking joy in the raw wind of the new world.
0: Mm. Thank you So: <coughs> okay. I was
1: what about I- to check Twitter, and I don't remember where I was.
0: Somebody will be tweeting.:. <laughs> um, so what is it that I mean here we are I'll presume everyone here is um, a book d- devotee of some sort. What is it about the words and the, someone else's experience? What, how does that save us?? Um,
1: well, I think... I mean, how
0: did that poem say,
1: help you? Well, because it's clear that she's been through something and that she's resilient, not necessarily because of it, but her resilience got her through that, and, like, it gives you that powerful image of a snowdrop. And I think metaphors are so important, for instance, with depression, because it's an invisible thing, so it's nice to talk about surviving through a storm or being a snowdrop or whatever it is, because it, it, it gives you... It, I don't know, it's just a... a, a, a hard to articulate power about that. I also think it's that thing of feeling less alone. It sounds so melodramatic but it's a feeling lots of people have. Like when I first had a breakdown, I felt I'm literally the only person who's ever felt like this in life, ever. That This is like the worst anyone's ever felt. I'm the only one who's felt like this. No one's meant to go through this. And then you hear of other people going through it it, and worse and having this sort of happen. And um, it's a comfort. You don't want to hear all about rainbows and unicorns when you're going through that. You want to, you want to have optimism, but you want it to, to feel like it's been provided by someone who actually knows and who's been through stuff. And I feel like that, that gives you so much power and nourishment. And it gives me, every time I hear a story of someone overcoming something that they thought they couldn't overcome or going through something... You know, even if it's just a, a celebrity on a daytime TV show or, or if it's a, um, a book or whatever it is, it just gives you that. Um, and I, I have it a lot at events, you know, like after an event. You'll hear from people who have, have been through all kinds of stuff. And I even see it on, like, Instagram, like people who've messaged me and, like, message, sending messages that I've had to get back to because they're in a, like, deeply suicidal place. And think literally there was one person who had the pills in front of them. And I thought, you know, I just can't give that person some hotlines. I've got to actually talk to this person and, like, to actually bring them down from that place. And then months later, see that they've, you know, got into university doing what they want to do and they're in a totally different place and they couldn't imagine it happening. And hearing that over and over again, even though it's kind of intense, it it makes you absolutely have incredible faith in the resilience of human beings. And I think often, you know, certainly when it's the first time someone's been ill with, say, depression, I think the dangerous thing is not having that perspective. And the more stories we hear, the more true stories, the more fictional stories from a real emotional place we hear, the more power we have. So I feel like stories genuinely, whether they're true or not, give you that power up.
0: And so what I'm interested in what you said there is, that, and you said it earlier too, trying to find the right words... Now you're talking about metaphor. Is it partly sort of just trying to sort of nail it and kind of yeah, totally. And,
1: and, uh, yeah, and I, I'm, I, I won't ever stop really. I don't think writing about mental health. I will write about other stuff and uh, I write you know straight after reasons to stay alive. I wrote about Father Christmas, which was the opposite thing. Uh, although my editor, who's in here tonight, said, Why have you made? Father Christmas are depressive you know, on my first <laughs> draft, so it wasn't that but yeah, I don't think I'll ever stop writing about it because I, I I constantly feel like I haven't quite explained what I'm feeling, so it's a, it's, a no, it's a non-stop quest to try and pin it down and understand yourself and understand other people and mental health mm.
0: I thought you wrote about um, especially in um, the first book Reasons to Stay Alive, I, I found I could really understand that incredible loop that you you were getting on from the anxiety to depression I thought you wrote about that extremely well
1: yeah that pendulum feeling yes but I it's still it's still you know I still feel like you're getting a little bit deeper but to get to the heart of it I feel like it's a never ending quest yes and I don't know I don't know um, if I ever will truly understand myself but I've learned to enjoy the process and one thing I've learned as well is to stop I used, what used to be dangerous for me was believing I would be better. I'd often feel like, mm. oh, I'm better. Yeah, and better, I better to me, to ask you about that. it was very binary. It was either like you were ill or you were well. And so I, I'd stop feeling as ill and I'd think, oh, so I'm well. And then like 24 hours later, I'd have a palpitation or pal- and it'd just be a little thing. But then I'd think, oh, so I'm not well. <laughs> So I must be ill. And then it start to spiral and spiral and spiral. And think, oh, I'm back to square one, this, that and the other. And so it was quite dangerous to believe in, for me, being 100% better. And my recovery, I think, really was about accepting um, mental states that I hadn't accepted before. And so I'd get depressed about having depression. It was very sort of like a postmodern meta-illness where you're, it's self-referential, so you'd get anxious about anxiety. You'd have panic attacks about panic attacks. And so you're constantly in this loop on this hamster wheel, and it's incredibly hard to hack into your brain and get out of that. And you have to reach a point where you... of acceptance, of, like, OK, I'm not better. There's not going to be one thing I can do that will instantly make me better in, like, a minute that's just not going to happen there's going to be a little path of rising where I'll still feel ill and I've just got to accept it and so I'm still on that path and yet I've known far more happiness this side of um, being ill than I ever did before and I'm even like grateful that I got ill because I wouldn't have become the person I am now like I feel like I am literally a different person to who mm. I was when I was 24.
0: The, and I want to ask you one more question, then I'm going to open it to the, to the audience. Oh, no, we're going to have a tiny reading from you two. Um, one of the, I would say, the heroes in, in this book is Andrea.
1: Yes. She's his here. wife. She's here. <laughs>
0: um, and your parents, obviously, too. And I, I suppose one, and there's probably a lot of people in this room who are either caring or, or aware of people who, around them who need care, and I'd, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit more what other people can do to help.
1: Um, yeah, like Andrea. I obviously mention her a lot in um, Reasons So Live. Alive. Um, I think people really struggle with what what they can do for people because, in a way, they're essentially limited. Because you to recover, it kind of needs. If someone really doesn't want to re- doesn't want to help themselves, it's incredibly hard to know what to do. I feel like Andrea helped definitely save my life, and I feel like. What she did, she had no training. She had no, uh, you know, direct... She was
0: very young, too, at the time. She was young,
1: 24. We were, we'd been together for five years, since teenagers, technically. But so it, it was a long, solid relationship for that age. Mm. Felt like, you know, an old married couple in that sense. And that gave me... Our closeness gave me freedom, and her, you know, as a person, gave me the freedom to say what I was feeling like. And I was sometimes frightened of saying it myself. I was stigmatizing Mm. myself. I thought, who am I? What is this person? And so having that freedom of someone where you don't have to wear a mask, you don't have to disguise your own self, you can actually just talk to them was great. And um, it gave me that valve which I didn't always have, to be perfectly honest. I didn't even have it with my parents sometimes because I, I didn't want to bring... You know, they clearly had their own lives going on and their own stresses. It was only really at a certain point Andrea I had as a person, and it was a burden on her. And I have, so, I have a lot of guilt about that period for her because, like, her mid-twenties were basically... She had a, a boyfriend who, before I came ill, you know, we, we'd argue because, like, I wanted to stay out. I wanted to stay carrying on drinking we were in a beef and I was like young and just hedonistic and wanting to party all the time and then she went from that boyfriend to this boyfriend who couldn't walk to the corner shop mm. on their own so I have a lot of guilt about that transition and how much you know I had separation anxiety how much I needed to be with her so as a drain on her resources and I, I, I you know I I um, I still have issues with that but yeah it it, it helped keep me alive to have somebody I could talk to it wouldn't necessarily in another person's case it wouldn't necessarily have to be a partner it could be a friend it could be a parent It could be a sibling or whatever um it could even be a doctor or a therapist but you know I was very lucky that I had that Mm. escape route talk and she was also the person who got me into writing because she said write down Mm. what you're feeling like now because there was a point there like with depression I literally felt like I couldn't move my tongue I I didn't have the words in my head everything was a jumble but she gave me a pen and she said write down what you're feeling and so I started writing down what I was feeling and it was like the lyrics to the very worst heavy metal song ever (laughs) written but it helped alleviate things and externalize things
0: Mm. Read us a tiny bit more, and then we'll open to the questions.
1: You Unplugged. Life can sometimes feel like an overproduced song with a cacophony of a hundred instruments playing all at once. Sometimes the song sounds better stripped back to just a guitar and a voice. Sometimes when a song has too much happening, it's hard to hear the song at all. And like that overcrowded song, we too can feel a bit lost. Our natural selves haven't changed in tens of thousands of years. And we should remember that with every new app or smartphone or social media platform or nuclear weapon we design. We should remember the song of being human. To think of the air when we feel stuck underwater. To find some calm amid an age of saturated marketing and breaking news and the million daily jolts of the internet. To be unafraid of being afraid. To be our own brilliant, true, beautiful, fragile, flawed, imperfect animal, aging, wonderful selves, trapped in time and space, made free by our ability to stop at any moment and find something. A song, a sunbeam, a conversation, a piece of pretty graffiti, and feel the sheer improbable wonder of being alive.
0: Thank you. So, could we have the lights up, please? And we have mics, I know. Um, questions? Oh, there is one right there. And there's one right here. Where are... Fine. Okay, we anyway. got one, two, and one here. Is this working? Yes. And I'll come to you next. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, hi. Where are you? I'm I'll oh, stop. sorry, I'll see hello. Hello, yeah, hi. Um, my name's Robert. Um, like you, I was very depressed when I was 25. Um, and a lot of things that I've... I was depressed about that and I've only got worse. Uh, climate change, for instance. You can probably see I've got an Extinction Rebellion patch on my jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things I've found is that um, it's actually, sometimes it's not your problem. Sometimes it is actually something that's out there in the world that is causing your problem and that the best way to deal with this is to do something about it yep. with other people. Um, so how would you feel about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting for me because like, Two things are sort of separate and sort of related. I mean, for me personally, it's, uh, it sounds really strange and almost twisted, but like sometimes when I have an external thing to worry about, and climate change definitely is top of that list, um, and it should be t- towards the top of pretty much everyone's list, um, I I don't feel depressed in the sort of clinical sense. I feel depressed in the oh, my God, that is horrendous and we should do things about it and, um, you know, working out exactly what we do about it. That's a collective effort and it's a divisive effort and we're still sort of working out. Um, but, yeah, so, like, for instance, like when I, I, when I lived in York, um, we lived by the river and our house was um, increasingly prone to flooding and that, this was a climate change-related thing. Uh, in York, the river floods much more than it used to. Um, yet... When our house literally flooded, um, I, I was heading towards depression, and then my house flooded, and then my depression um, lifted because I had something external to worry about and I think it's not it's not that obviously disaster and catastrophe doesn't cheer you up, but I feel like having something where you actually feel like you you, you have to you have to do something about for me is is, is almost. Um, therapeutic, and I feel like, you know, it's probably a, 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 a great, great time for me to have depression because there's so, so many things that I could divert my own inner turmoil in, in terms of external turmoil. But I feel like definitely, I mean, climate change is something that I'm constantly alarmed at how little... I know it feels to people that we're having loads of coverage about climate change, but I personally don't think or feel like we're having... Um, anywhere near enough. So I feel like Brexit has taken over everything. And I, I, I'm a bit obsessed by Brexit as well, but I feel like climate change... You know, if we, don't, if, we don't, if we burn the Amazon rainforest down and we don't have any oxygen to breathe, then it doesn't really matter the level of Brexit that we have, <laughs> because Brexit isn't going to give us any kind of oxygen and, you know, we're chopping down trees. So I, I, I am obsessed with it, I, I, but I, I differ to you in the sense that weirdly... I, I kind of like having any kind of external focus, even if it's a catastrophic one, to divert from inner stuff.
0: Right. That's how we're going to save the world. <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> yes, back there.
1: Hi. Hello. Can you hear? Uh, so, a fanboy moment and a question. Oh, where are you? Where, where, Hi. Sorry. Hi. Hello. Um, yes, I'm sure there's quite a number of us follow you on Twitter and have done for a long time, and we're here. Um, I had a really tough time a few years ago with anxiety and depression, and your writing helped get me through it. So thank you. Um, the closing passage of How to Stay Alive is something that brings me to tears every time I read it. Um, so the question is, when are they making it into a movie, Matt? <laughs> well, which reasons to Stay Alive or How to Stop Time? No, sorry, How to Stop Time. How to Stop Time. Um, I don't know. Um, they, Benedict Cumberbatch bought the film rights uh, two years ago. I'm not, not allowed to say too much, but I, they, they, they had a screenwriter. They didn't like the script, that that screenwriter did. They've now got a screenwriter writing another script. Depends how good that screenwriter's script is, whether it gets made. There is definitely going to be a film made of one of my books, but it's um, the Father Christmas book.
0: LAUGHTER
1: <laughs> it's a boy called Christmas, which they have finished filming. And that, so I think that means they're going to make it. And that is going to be a film with Maggie Smith and Jim Broadbent. and oh, nice. um, Kristen Wiig, and who else? Sally Hawkins and, and various people in it. And uh, they've just finished filming that in Prague and it's amazing. And it's people who made Paddington. And I'm really honoured to be part of it. I didn't write it or anything, but, um, so I can blame them if it's a terrible film. But, um, so that's happening. And hopefully that makes How to Stop Time more likely to happen if it's any good. So I don't know. We will see. But yeah, it, it, I'd like that. Yeah, that would be <laughs> good.
0: Okay. I'm, got you. I'm just going to line up two more people. Can you... There's someone here and back there. Okay. Yes, go.
1: Hi, hi Matt. My name's Hamish. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm really right ready to find on on the people. Oh, hello. You're line. there. Hello, I'm <laughs> Hamish. Um, not that I'm stalking you, but I came to see your gig back at the Queen's Hall a few months ago. And oh, yes. I thought you were excellent. Thank you. Uh, I, I was reusing some of my lame jokes. Don't worry, last right. i yep. again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was unwell last year. I had to take six months off my work and then much, much better and your writings helped me a lot. Um, a question I've had through that time, which I've tried to answer myself and I'd appreciate your your words on it, is to what extent do you think happiness is a choice? Mm,
0: nice question.
1: Ah uh, I, um, I I I don't think it's a simple choice. I, I I don't I think what part of the problem is nowadays we almost expect happiness is like the default setting, which it definitely isn't. Um, And I don't think we're, you know, evolutionary psychologists talk about this a lot, how we're not actually designed for happiness necessarily. So I I feel like happiness as a name is probably dangerous in itself. I feel like, you know, and certainly when I was depressed, I wasn't really thinking about happiness much. I just wanted to be inverted commas, normal or neutral. I just wanted to feel an absence of pain. You know, if, you, if your leg's on fire, you're not thinking, ah, oh, I really wish I was on holiday now, having a happy time. You just want your leg to stop being on fire. And so when I was, like, depressed, I just wanted an absence of depression. And... Um, but I feel, like, I feel like there are, I feel like there's choices in how we react to things. So I don't feel like depression is a choice, obviously. I don't feel like happiness is a choice, obviously. But I feel like, um we, what we do have control over is our response to things, which we can work on. For instance, I, I still have anxiety. I have anxiety right now. But whereas 10 years ago, I'd have pretended I had the norovirus, and I wouldn't have turned up today. I now turn up, and I manage the anxiety, and I enjoy myself, and I'm pleased with myself when I do it, and meet, hopefully meet lots of you people afterwards. Um, but, so there's choices in how we react to things. I don't think we found the perfect magic button um, for happiness. Um, I I thought I had it last night after I had three bloody Marys, and then I discovered this morning, didn't have it. Um. (laughs) So.
0: There's a question here.
1: Hello, I'm right here. Hello. Uh, You say you're anxious when you when you talk in public to an audience. Yes. Are you anxious when you Twitter to this even bigger audience that you don't see? No. Why not? Don't know. I should be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I think it's because it's not. I think there's something about face-to-face communication and it goes back to us when we're in a tribe and being judged by people. It doesn't feel quite real, does it, the internet? No, that's a whole problem with the internet. It, it, it gives you a sense of connection without actually making you connected, which is why the most connected generation there has ever been is also the generation with the highest rates of loneliness because the thing that we think feeds the connection doesn't actually it. So I feel in the same way. I don't quite. I feel like I should be more nervous about Twitter because you get to a certain point and like you can say a tweet and then it'll end up in a, a newspaper or something. Well, you know, because journalists are so lazy now, they'll base an article around something someone's tweeted. But yeah, I I, I just like, fire it off. And then I disagree with myself about five minutes later. And then someone remembers something you tweeted like five years ago and they say, oh. Don't lie. I? Mean, you can't even remember what you tweeted like ten minutes ago. So it's me... <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> I know. I've, I, there's one part. This is why I'm liking Andrea oh, so much. We've got someone over here. This, let me just tell you this. In one part in oh, the book, Andrea goes by the, the, and you're on the computer, and Andrea goes by and says, "Matt, you know that makes you feel ill. Come, yeah. come to bed. Yes, I know, I know," he says, <laughs> 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 and doesn't. Yes, go ahead. Yes, I wanted to ask you. Uh, You said your your parents helped you and Andrea helped you. So is there anything that they did in particular uh, that helped you when you were in a very bad place? And also I wanted to ask you, since you got um, your anxiety and all that when you were in your 20s, there wasn't social media and all that. Why do you think there was a lot... Anxiety levels in people have grown so much
1: okay um, so, so first part, as I kind of answered earlier about you know ju- just literally listening being a prime thing you know listening I think one of the reasons why therapy um, is has the same success rates now as Prozac is because l- that process of just listening to someone them externalising it. Sometimes they don't necessarily want a magic answer. They'd love it if it existed, but they know it doesn't exist. They just want someone to listen and look supportive and sympathetic. Um, The second part of anxiety rates rising, you know, it's a contentious issue, again, because some people say, "Oh, anxiety rates aren't really rising because we've always had the same amounts of anxiety and depression. We're just talking about it more. It's becoming less stigmatised. I disagree with that. I think anxiety rates are rising, because if you break down the figures, Actually, some things are rising much faster than others. And the things that are rising the fastest are actually stuff that still have a massive amount of stigma attached to them. So, for instance, um, self-harm, eating disorders, um, borderline personality disorder. Things that are rising are still massively stigmatised. And we know already that... um, depression and mental, a lot of mental illness, it, like physical illness, is cultural. So, you know, Greenland's been in the news a lot this week, because a certain <laughs> idiotic American president feels like he can just buy whatever he, he wants. Um, but Greenland has the highest suicide rate in uh, the world uh, by a long way, more than double the next country, which is Lithuania. And you know, there's, uh, there's all sorts of reasons for that in Greenland, partly to do with its place in terms of geography, partly to do with it being a relatively small community and it, it, people are affected more by each other, partly because they've all got guns in their houses, um, rifles, uh, hunting rifles, uh, all kinds of things. But we know um, suicide is a cultural thing and a lot of mental health is cultural. So if there is something about now and our cultural time behind, for instance, why um, the number of eating disorders have risen. Uh, in terms of hospital admissions but have doubled in the last 10 years for both genders, uh, for uh, men and women, sorry, um, is because of, um, you know, uh, cultural things like um, social media being part of that uh, in terms of uh, body image uh, and and the images that people are seeing. I always find it interesting that the country of Fiji in the South Pacific never had a case of... um, Never had a recorded case of any eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia before 1996. Then suddenly it started having increasing cases of eating disorders. And the only thing that changed in 1996 nationally in Fiji was. Uh, the arrival of state television and all they were showing on state television was American imported TV shows like Melrose Place and Beverly Hills 90210 and creating this new ideal of beauty which was totally different to the traditional Fijian ideal of beauty which was about um, being big and beautiful and size and it was a compliment to say to someone oh look, you look like you've been eating well that was a compliment in Fiji and then suddenly everyone wanted to look like uh, Heather Locklear and blonde and skinny and Californian and then suddenly eating disorders rose. So, so that's the clear idea of something that's cultural. But I feel like it's, it's too big a question, and, too, and I'm, I'm conscious yes. that I'm over the time. It's
0: time, sadly. Yeah. Listen, I get to read the last tweet. Oh, wait, um, August 8, 2019, 1956, 7.56. Reasons to stay alive, the play, is coming to Sheffield, Bristol, Huddersfield, Newcastle, Manchester, York, and Leeds this autumn. That's
1: going to be so weird. (laughs)
0: Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's you. So we're, we're heading to the book tent right here. Hope to see you there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the book festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at Edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.